You know, sometimes a sermon will flow right out of that last song and it just thematically just goes right with it. It's so smooth, that transition. You don't even know that it's happened. And then other times, your pastor makes this abrupt, jarring redirect coming out of that last worship song. That's what's happening today. So just go ahead and fasten your seatbelts because um, I want to talk to you about something that has nothing to do with that last song. I want to talk to you about conspiracy theories. <laughs> that some of you are excited just a little worrying. I want to just list for you, I, I did a ton of reading this week, and I don't know that I'm smarter for it, but I did a ton of reading anyway on what are the most popular conspiracy theories in our culture today. And I just want to, not in any particular order, not in my top 10, all the way to the most popular, but just, just some of the ones that I found this week that I think were the most intriguing Um, reptilian lizard hybrids have infiltrated the upper echelons of government and entertainment and are controlling the world. Disclaimer, I'm not making this stuff up. Like, this is stuff I read this week, okay? Here's another. The moon landing was faked, probably by the reptilian hybrids. Those same lizard people who faked the Holocaust and the deaths of six million Jews at the hands of the Nazis, same, same group of reptilians, Um, Queen Elizabeth II of England is a cannibal and has a secret freezer where she keeps her special treats. Probably because she's a lizard hybrid. I I don't know. Um, Michelle Obama is a man and he, she murdered Joan Rivers for telling the world the truth. I don't know if a few years ago, like Joan Rivers said, Michelle Obama's a man. I think it was a joke. It was a really bad joke. But um, now there's a conspiracy theory that Michelle Obama murdered Joan Rivers. Um, I think shortly after, Joan Rivers ended up in the Queen's freezer. I don't know. Um, The Israeli government has a pack of genetically engineered evil sharks that they use for ocean defense. Probably that division of Israeli defense is headed up by Dr. Evil, who puts freaking laser beams on their heads. The Beatles never existed, were fake, banned, staffed by a cast of nearly identical actors. Hitler's still alive in Belize with Elvis and JFK. Uh, The celebrity, pseudo-celebrity known as Jay-Z, is a time-traveling vampire. And we know this because of a photo taken in 1939 in which he appears exactly as he does today. In fact, many Hollywood celebrities are blood-sucking vampires as well, which is why they don't seem to age but they do get together for Bunko Night with the reptilian hybrid people. Well, I made that last part up. But the, the, my favorite, my favorite. Dinosaurs played an integral part in building the pyramids. And as I read that one, all I could see in my mind was the T-Rex going, I got a big hand and little arms. Right? It's like, really? I think I've got a spade in this hand. I, I just don't know how this is going to work. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that was a great movie. I, I just, this is what happens um, when your pastor's doing sermon prep all week. You're getting a glimpse into my mind. Conspiracy, intrigue, right? This puppy's an X-file wrapped in a cover-up, deep-fried in a paranoid conspiracy. Um, wh- why? Why are they so popular? 
Why do so many people believe them? One of the factors some psychologists point to is an underlying need for uniqueness. In other words, a need to be different from other people by embracing beliefs that are out of the ordinary. I go, well, okay, maybe that's true, maybe that's not true. But the single most consistent factor in those who are prone to embrace conspiracy theories is that they largely do not feel that they have a lot of control over their own lives. And so this is the case for a myriad of reasons. But I I was thinking about it this weekend. I think really there's not a lot of difference between conspiracy theorists and the rest of us. When you think about we're all drawn to the idea of conspiracy because it resonates with us because we understand the idea of people being self-interested and not having our best interests at heart and having hidden motives and getting together to, to do shady things without our knowledge. I mean, that's pretty common. I think we all agree that that happens. And conspiracy theories extend upon that, tap into those assumptions, tap into those fears that we all have about the world around us. And, and that's just it. Like, we all have those fears. And that's why conspiracy theories make sense to all of us. But the question I wrestled with this week is, why do we all have those fundamental underlying assumptions? Well, what if I told you that the reason why we all share those assumptions is that there really is a worldwide conspiracy, a worldwide system of deception at the global level, and it's designed to lead people astray and away from the knowledge of the one true and living God. It's an effective system, it's a dangerous system, and it's subtle, and it's all around you all the time. Now, would you say I was crazy? Would you say that I'm wearing my tinfoil hat this morning? Right? Let's look. I want you to look at the last half of 1 John chapter 2 this morning with me, and let's see what the Spirit says to us in the Word about this world system, this conspiracy. Let's look at it together. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 23. Do not love the world, the cosmos in Greek. Or, any, or, or anything in the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here's another litmus test. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides or lives forever. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they're not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let's go back to verse 15. Do not love the world, the cosmos, or the things of the cosmos, the world. If anyone loves that system, then the love of the Father is not in him. So that's our key word, right? Cosmos in Greek. It's, it's, it's translated world, but it's a system. 
It's not just the blue ball that we inhabit. It's the, the way that life is orchestrated and the way people interact and the way culture is shaped and, and, and everything that happens on the blue ball that is meant to lead people away from the knowledge of God, right? So there are different manifestations. There are different veins of how this manifests. There are several religions in the world that, that look very similar to Christianity, but at the heart of them, they're not, Right? And we could, we could think of some of those this morning. We could think about Mormonism and the fact that um, at the heart of that, everything on the veneer of Mormonism looks like Christianity, but then they try to convert us to Mormonism. So my question to the Mormon missionaries that come to my door is, if we're really all Christians, why are you trying to convert me to Mormonism? <laughs> we're not. We're not all Christians, right? We don't agree on some of the really basic things about our faith. We say God is an eternal God. He's always been. He never began to be. And they say God was a man on another planet who lived a righteous life and got this planet as his reward. And now he's our God. So so even at the heart of that, right? But it looks the same. It looks similar, right? So there's some veins of this deception that run parallel or look like Christianity. And then there's some that just don't even bother to try to look like Christianity. I, I'm remembering the, uh, was a scene in the Lord of the Rings and the Fellowship of the Ring where they're talking about Strider. Anybody LOTR nerds in the, in the house? A couple of you? We'll, we'll get together and nerd out later. Okay. Um, and the hobbits are all like, are you sure that that guy's not a bad guy, right? He's not an agent of the evil one. And Frodo's really wise about it. He says, I think that if he were, an agent of the enemy would look nicer, look fairer, and feel fouler. They look good on the outside, but you'd have this weird in, intu- intuitive sense that something's not right, right? And this guy, Strider, he looks like a bum, but he's a, but he's a noble bum, and he's got a good heart, right? So it's like, yeah, he looks kind of straggly, but I think his heart is right. So, so that we, we get that inversion, right? In the world, we go, man, that guy's put together and that whole thing looks so well packaged, but at the, at the core of it, it's just wrong. It's wrong. And then again, there's streams of this cosmos system that are different from Christianity, all the world religions that ultimately all converge in leading people away from Christ and away from the truth because ultimately all of them teach that you must do instead of it's been done. There's something you have to do to make God like you. And Jesus stands apart from all of that and says, no, it's done I've done it for you because you could never do enough. So this whole cosmos, this world system leading people astray, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. We call this the trifecta of temptation. It's simply stated, these are the three temptations to sin that every human being will experience. And so uh, some translations have the desire of the flesh, the desire, but some translations will say the lust of. And and so the the first one, the lust of the flesh or the desires of the flesh, that's really just the temptation to feel physical pleasure in some sinful activity. To do something to make your flesh feel satisfied can involve any kind of sinful activity that would bring pleasure to your body. Examples would be sexual sins, um, gossiping, physical violence, Drug use, right? all those kind of come under the heading of uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the body. Uh, and then there's lust or desire of the eyes. This is the desire to, to possess what we see 
or, or to have the things which have a visual appeal to us. This is our whole um, system of advertising is based on the lust of the eyes, right? It's the desire to covet money, to covet possessions and other things that aren't from God uh, that aren't necessarily inherently evil things but would, would derail our hearts in another direction. And um, that's all from the world. That's all from the world around us. And so John emphasizes that these physical things that we want to put our hope in and we want to feel our satisfaction in, they just don't last. They don't last. We have to find our satisfaction in Jesus. And then those things can be useful tools for us, but they don't hold our hearts in captivity, right? And then there's the pride of life, which is a sinful temptation for excess, greatness of power, that we all feel the temptation to attain. Pride itself is one of the sins that God hates most. It's pride that took Lucifer, the, the, the chief cherub and worship leader in heaven, and, and caused him to fall and become Satan, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren. Pride is at the heart of that. Ben Franklin, uh, I think I've told you this story before, he was keeping a journal for a while on uh, overcoming the, what he called the seven deadly sins, right? And he's like sloth, and he's writing all about sloth and laziness. He's like, oh yeah, I'm doing great, doing great for weeks. And then like, I don't remember the next one. And then he gets to pride, and he's like in day two of that week on pride, he's like, man, I am so excited. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm overcoming pride. I'm doing so well at overcoming pride. And then there's like this like, the, the, the pen just stops and kind of, there's this gap because he realized like the more I celebrate my like defeat of pride, the more proud I'm becoming about that. There's this inherently wicked, seducing thing in us, right? And, and it's funny because Genesis 3, the fall of man, this is the temptation that was in Eden. That's the forerunner of all of this. When you read the text, Genesis 3, 6, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. You see the parallel? It's been going on since the beginning, right? She took it and she ate and she gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. This has been happening since the beginning. And the reason Satan hasn't had to change the strategy is because the strategy is effective. And we keep stumbling into it all the time. So look at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And therefore we know that it is the last hour. So there's a real sense in which Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven inaugurated the end times in one sense. But then the Bible clearly lays out some other things for us to look for that would mark the ending of the age or the end times. And as as a careful student of prophecy, of Bible prophecy, I would just say to you this morning, unequivocally, that you and I are living in those days. But there, John says, this is the spirit of Antichrist, little a. And I want to just make a distinction for you this morning between the little a, spirit of Antichrist, and the capital A, Antichrist, which is a person who will come on the world scene at the ending of the age to deceive millions of people and lead them astray. And so those are, those are part and partial to the same system and the same force behind them, but they manifest differently. There are many little a antichrists in the world, little uh, people, personalities, uh, religious systems that want to lead you away from Jesus. And then there will be one person who comes on the scene who's the capital A antichrist. And um, 
I don't know who that is, and you don't either, and so nobody else does either. So you're reading up some stuff online, go, this is the Antichrist. Like, this happened all through the Obama administration, right? And like, come, cut it out. Because you don't know, like, we, I don't think, as a, as a pastor in my studies, I don't think we'll be here. I think one of the things that's a prerequisite for his revelation being revealed is that we're removed from the scene. So anyway, if you want to talk more about eschatology and end times, uh, you pay, and I'll pray, and we'll have coffee this week, Okay. Verse 19, they went out from us, speaking of those antichrists, little a, right? But they were not of us. If they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they're not all of us. So the immediate context here is those who are in the spirit of antichrist, leading people astray, false teachers. And one of the things they were saying, one of the reasons John wrote the book, we've talked about this, saying, hey, indulge your flesh, your flesh is inherently corrupt and evil anyway. It's only your spirit that God cares about. You can do whatever you want. You can go sleep with whoever you want. You can indulge the flesh as much as you want. And it doesn't matter. God doesn't care about that. And they were leading people astray. This is the spirit of Antichrist, right? And so John would call them false converts. I think these are really confusing. For me, growing up in the Southern Baptist Church, especially, I saw a lot of people who, as a, as a young person, had said, I prayed a prayer, I walked the aisle, I, I said the prayer, and I got saved. But as a young adult or as, a, as an older adult, they're like, I can do whatever I want to do. I can go indulge the flesh. I can get rip-roaring drunk four nights a week and then come stumbling into church on Sunday morning, and God is still pleased with me because I said a magical prayer when I was 11 years old. And I just want to say to you, like one of the things that's confusing about that is go, well, how can, well, the scriptures, especially the New Testament is just like laden with these verses that say, um, God's going to make you holy. If you've given your life to Jesus, one of the things he's going to do is refine your character so that you're becoming more like Jesus, not more like the world. And why the disparity? And, and the disparity is because there are false converts in the church. There are people who think that they are saved, but they're not. Because salvation is about God's authority. Salvation is about a surrender to Jesus. It's about seeing my sin and coming in repentance and turning from that sin, not coming in my sin and going, I really would just like a hall pass so that I can keep on sinning. That's not salvation. That's not the gospel. So Matthew chapter 13, you get uh, seven kingdom parables there. And the first, uh, no, excuse me, the second kingdom parable is, is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And one of the things Jesus says is there was a farmer who had a, a field full of wheat and an enemy came in and sowed tares among the wheat. And, and the tares grew up with the wheat and they look just like wheat, except they don't actually produce any fruit. And so the, all the hired hand says, do you want us to go out and rip out those tares and get them out of the field? And he says, no, don't do that because you'll rip up the good wheat with them. It's hard to tell the difference. Let the, let the angels sort it out at the harvest, right? When we harvest, we'll sort it out then, right? So that is to say, same thing with the seventh parable, the parable of the great catch of fish or the parable of the dragnet, like they're sorting the fish on the beach. It's such a great haul of fish that they couldn't, it was tearing the nets as they drug it up onto the beach. And so the question was, what do we do with all these fish? He says, sort them out. They're good fish and bad fish. Put the bad fish in their own pile. And, and, and again, like the angels will sort this out at the judgment, right? They're, they're going to come. And so there is what we talk about when we talk about the church, capital C. We talk about the visible church, which is any local church you could go sit in on a Sunday morning and see a room full of people. That's what you can see. But within that visible church, there's an invisible church of those who are saved. And there's some people in the room who are not for whatever reason. 
in their own hearts, they've not submitted to Jesus Christ, okay? So the visible church, invisible church. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. You have all knowledge. So, so you've been anointed. You have knowledge. This is John's rebuttal of Gnosticism again. Remember we said one of the things about the Gnostic system is that there's this, this esoteric, special, hidden knowledge that only a select few can get to, right? And, and so he's rebutting this. John is not writing because they're ignorant. He's writing because they know. They do have the truth already in the fullness of Jesus. And there's no secrets. There's no hidden knowledge about Jesus. It's all plain in the gospel. He says, don't worry about There's people saying there's a secret truth over here that you don't know about. You don't really have a relationship with God because you don't know this secret truth. It's like, forget that. You have Jesus. You have the complete revelation of God. Verse 21, I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lies of the truth. Who's the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. To really, like we could sum up some of this battle, some of this conflict is a conflict between truth and falsehood. Truth and lies, right? This cosmos system, this world system, is at its heart an embrace of sin and an exaltation of self. It's an embrace of sin and an exaltation of self. And that's the lie. We go all the way back to Genesis and the temptation of the serpent. And what did he say? You will be like who? Like God, right? That's embrace the sin and exalt yourself. You don't let him tell you what to do. Who does he think he is? God? Oh, wait. He is. Don't let him tell you what to do. Don't let him put constraints on you. He's the cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want you to have joy and, and experience fullness of life. He just wants to tell you no and keep all the best things away for himself and not let you have that. Just violate that rule. Violate that boundary. And then you can be like God. You can determine what's right and wrong. That's the temptation from the very beginning. And here it is again. Embrace sin, exalt self. You can be your own God. In fact, I would submit to you, and I'll get email probably from somebody. That's fine. I would submit to you that our current situation in our current culture, whereby people think that they can create reality just by speaking words, is the ultimate psychosis and it is the end game of rebellion against God's authority. Because what did God do at creation? Genesis 1 and 2, he spoke. He said, light, and there was light. He said, stars, there were stars, right? So God can speak and then reality takes shape because of what he has said. And in the quest to become God's, we have reached a place as a culture where we really think the words that we speak can change reality. That's crazy. That's called psychosis. That's called psychosis. That's the spirit of Antichrist. We've arrived at the fullness of rebellion when a society is filled with people who do what is right in their own eyes and whose rulers do not fear God, who murder babies to appease Lucifer and bow down and worship the creation, self. We're created, right? Rather than the creator. We live here. We live here. 
This is our culture. And this is why John begins his letter as he did. Remember what he said? That which was spoken, the word that was spoken, and then he moves down the spectrum to we've seen it, we've examined it, we've, heard, we've touched it with our hands, we've felt it, the word of life. He moves down the spectrum from objective truth and reality, the highest form of cognitive reasoning to understand the spoken and written word, all the way down the spectrum to the experiential reality of touching and feeling and and tactile and dealing with Jesus as a person in relationship to him, right? Objective truth, subjective experience. God encompasses all of that, but it begins here and it, and it reaches its fullness here, right? And so he begins with that. He begins with, uh, because it's so frustrating to see, even in conversations I've been having over recent weeks, the influence of that subjectivity on thinking of those who claim to know Christ. We're so rooted in our feelings, so rooted in our experience. One conversation I was having just last week was filled with really sloppy thinking and um, ad hominem attacks and accusations and, and those conversations involving people from my past who are Christ followers, who say, I love Jesus, but whose uh, formative years, their experience with Jesus was rooted in ministries that were heavy on the subjective, heavy on the relationship with Jesus, which is not bad, but devoid of the objective word. No rooting in the, in the truth of God's objective word given his self-revelation, right? But all of this and none of that, and now they've, they've, they've gone in a weird direction. They've gone weird, they've gone wonky. And it's hard to come back because they don't recognize the word as the authority. They recognize their experience as their authority, right? And so now we have broken relationship. And, and, and think, of how, uh, think of how our culture gets information. This is true of our culture too, Right? Our entertainment, our, our media, we're visual. On the spectrum of objectivity over here to subjectivity, this is totally subjective. We think, oh, I believe it because I can see it. Really? Go to Vegas and go watch a magic show and, and find yourself completely deceived by what you think you see. Your eyes are not the test of what is real, Right? It's easy to, to be deceived by what we see. And it's not at all accidental that since the invention of the television with the transistor in 1948, that we've seen a plague of pornography destroying lives and homes. Right? Because the visual is so powerful for us. The visual can never satisfy us, but it can subdue our hearts and it can take us captive. And so um, William, Blake, uh, William Blake said this, life's, this life's dim windows of the soul distorts the heavens from pole to pole and goads you to believe a lie when you see with and not through the eye. Let me just give that to you again. So we need to chew on this this morning. Life's dim windows of the soul. Our eyes are the windows of the soul, right? Distort the heavens from pole to pole and goads you to believe a lie when you see with and not through the eye. Because we're intended to see through our eyes with our conscience, about what's right and wrong. When we see with our eyes, devoid of the conscience, we end up reconstructing reality to suit our own desires. Your eyes can seduce you. Your eyes can seduce you. And we have to ground ourselves in objective reality of God's word day in and day out to guard our hearts against that seduction, right? Um, Satan would hand you a broken compass and have you go in circles and never get anywhere in your life. Here's a twist. I love what Ravi Zechariah says. He says, in reality, 
there's nothing so glorious and intriguing and beautiful as good. And in reality, there's nothing so boring and as monotonous as evil. But in the world of entertainment, it's exactly the opposite. Fictional evil is lovely and intriguing, and fictional good is boring and flat. Have you not seen that? Have you not seen that? As a result of our enemy's conspiracy at work, there is a conspiracy. And there's a war raging all around you. One of the things John says is that God's kingdom is both now, it's come, it's here, but it's not yet. Not in its fullness. How can it be? Now, not yet. Because now God is reigning in the hearts and lives of his people who come to him in repentance and, and, and put their faith in him. Then he will reign on the earth fully, unopposed, uncontended, right? And so it's now and not yet. What does John say? Those who do the will of God, that's a now, will what? Live forever. That's a not yet. It's both. It's both. And Satan's kingdom is rooted in deception. In order not to fall into his traps and deceits, we must be grounded. We must be steeped in the truth of God's word and in fellowship with one another. So again, there really is, <laughs> there really is a worldwide conspiracy. There's a system of deception. It's designed to lead people away from the knowledge of God. It is effective, it's dangerous, it's subtle, and it's all around us. And so the results of this reality for us as Christ followers, here's some things that you can just count on. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, wholeheartedly submitted to him, you can just count on being hated for his namesake. It's a promise from Jesus himself. Some people are gonna hate you on account of Jesus. You'll be persecuted and treated unjustly. Well, you say, why would, pastor, you're supposed to encourage our hearts. We're supposed to go away with happy thoughts on Sunday. No, I want you to go away with a realistic picture of what it means to follow Jesus. Because if you leave here with happy thoughts, happy thoughts, and you get out there and you face opposition and persecution, you go, wait a minute, I, I must have this thing all wrong. Jesus is not the real way. It sets you up for failure, right? My job is to tell you the truth. So here's some of the promises, right? Hated for Jesus' namesake, persecuted, treated unjustly, you will be misunderstood. You'll be misunderstood and you'll be misrepresented. Those last two, misunderstood and misrepresented, are for me and maybe for some of you some of the most painful and frustrating realities of my life. When my heart really is to love someone and I'm trying to share something with them and I'm misunderstood and then misrepresented, it is one of the most frustrating things. And in my heart, I'm tempted to believe that God cannot relate to me. And then I realize there's no one who's more misunderstood or more misrepresented than the one true and living God. If there's anybody who understands that, it's Jesus being misunderstood and misrepresented. And you'll be tempted to think that you're the only one experiencing those things. And Jesus was tempted in every way as we are and yet was without sin. So we press into Jesus in those moments. There really is a worldwide conspiracy. There is a worldwide system of deception designed to lead people away from the knowledge of God. It is effective, it is dangerous, it's subtle, and it's all around you. And so here's what we gotta do this morning. You ready for this? Here's your takeaway. We've got to, we've got to apologize. We've gotta apologize and what I mean by that is the Greek word apologia. That's where we get the word apologize. Apologia means to give an answer, to give a reason. Peter would say in 1 Peter 3, be ready always to give an answer, a reason for the hope that's within you. But do it as a jerk for Jesus. 
It's not what it says. It says, do it with gentleness and respect, right? Do it with gentleness and respect. We must be heard. The truth must be heard from our lips, but it also has to be seen in our lives. It has to be seen. We cannot give answers that we are unwilling to live out in front of people because our culture, honestly, is tired of words. And this next generation of young men and women are tired of seeing all the Christians in constant moral failure. Then it seems to be a change in this generation of people in the church already. And not because of a slip up uh, every once in a while, because of an, but because of an unwillingness to really count the cost and embrace the call of Jesus to become holy. And, th- and they're tired of seeing it. They're tired of seeing it. The decisions that you make as Christ followers impact the people around you. And there's just no escaping that reality. There's not a decision. Listen, you think, man, I'm single. I don't have any kids yet. I'm not married. I can make decisions and not worry about it impacting other people. Lie straight out of the pit of hell. There's no decision that you can make that does not impact someone else in some way. And you go, okay, well then I just won't make any decisions. <clears throat> Wrong. That's a decision. And that decision impacts people negatively too. When you abdicate, that, that's a negative decision. So you just can't escape it. You can't escape it. I was listening to Ravi this week, Ravi Zacharias. He said, as he spoke to a room of 1,500 people at a college campus, the next evening, the, the, one of the organizers of the event was driving him to the airport, and they were driving to the airport, and the organizer of this event was a doctor. And he was saying to Ravi Zacharias, I, I was able to bring my neighbor to your talk last night. Would you like to hear what she said? And Ravi's like, I'm not sure. Would I like to hear what she said? <laughs> you never know if it's going to be good or bad. And he said, no, I, I want to tell you it was intriguing. He, I asked her, I said, what did you think of Dr. Zacharias' talk tonight as, as they were going home? And, and she said, one thing she said, and it was intriguing. She said, I wonder what he's like in his personal life. Because she heard this presentation. She heard a well-reasoned, well-thought-out defense of the gospel. She heard all the right answers to all the questions that she had been wrestling with. But at the end of it, she wanted to know if he was a man of integrity. Was he living what he had been saying? Because the proof is in the pudding, right? She wanted to know if the life that Ravi lives is commensurate with the words that he preaches. And the proof is in how we walk with Jesus. That's precisely, precisely what 1 John is hammering at again and again and again. It's why all these litmus tests are in this letter. Because if you say this, then this other thing must be true in your life. And if this isn't true, then what you're saying is not true. How will you live in these days? How will you live? Only the cross of Jesus gives us what we need to overcome this world system that keeps us in bondage. Only at the foot of the cross do we find the intersection of evil and justice and love and forgiveness. That's crazy that all four of those would converge. Evil, justice, love, and forgiveness converging at the foot of the cross because there God has dealt with those concepts philosophically. He's dealt with those concepts theologically and rationally such that the human mind can understand and reason and embrace the truth. That's objective reality. But there at the foot of the cross, he's also dealt with the fact that love was poured out and justice was meted out and forgiveness was handed out and evil was stamped out. 
And this is the experience that's now available to every man, woman, boy, and girl through a relationship with the risen Jesus. That's the subjective experience. And in light of that reality, how will you live in these days? Some of you have been saved. Some of you have come to Jesus, but you're still playing with fire. Can I just say to you right now this morning, quit messing around with the cosmos. Quit. No good will come of that. My daddy used to say, there's only one thing that comes from sitting on a fence. And I won't finish the saying. You can just imagine what he said. If you walk in the middle of the road, sooner or later you're going to get hit. Jesus hasn't called you to walk in the middle of the road. He's called you to come over, right? We said this last week, domain of darkness, kingdom of the beloved son. There's no overlap. You're on team A or team B. What do you want? What do you want? To many of you who are saved and you're walking with Jesus, I want you to remember that you're on mission. You're on mission. Remember that it is first and foremost a rescue mission. You're on mission. People all around you, friends, family, loved ones that are in bondage to this cosmos, this world system and its puppet master, Satan. They're in bondage. So be bold. Be brave. Be vocal. Be loving. Save all that you can because the house is on fire and soon it's going to burn to the ground. Be on mission. Be intentional. Some of you this morning, you don't fit in either category because you're still in captivity. And I just want to say to you that until you've had Jesus back up the moving truck and move you out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son, the kingdom of light, there's only one response for you this morning. There's only one step you need to take and it's not self-betterment. It's not, man, I got to find some self-help books and watch a lot of Oprah Winfrey. That's not what you need. You need to repent. You need to repent. You need to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ who loved you and died in your place. And you need to repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I'm gonna let you respond now. I'm gonna invite the team to come back as I pray. You respond. Believers respond as you recommit your heart to be on mission this week. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be. I invite you to that right now. Jesus, would you do your work here among us? We give it our best. We give 100%. And we recognize that all of we, what we do in the power of, of our feeble bodies is not enough to transform the human heart. Would you, by the working of your spirit, move in these people, in the hearts and lives of every person in this room, to, to further our, our holiness, to move us towards righteousness, or to move us into the kingdom, out of the domain of darkness. Lord, I trust you and your sufficiency to do all these things by the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.